Uh, it's wonderful to be here this morning once again. This is my third time getting to be here, crossing the Sound on the ferry from New Haven. The um, first time I, I came and was invited was back in January, and then again in March, and now here it is April, and I get to come in May, and each you know, the thing we sang about uh, the, the glory of God's creation, I forget the exact line, from um, creations revealing your majesty to the, the fragrance of spring, you know, so I'm getting to experience that, these snapshots of Long Island. But um, it's interesting because even from the, the first time I was getting to know Mark, um, he talks about what, uh, what it's like to be here in the Hamptons in the summer. So I was here in January, and he was showing me around. He's like, but you can't wait to see what it's like in the summer. And then I came back in March, but you can't wait to see what it's like in the summer. And you know, even this week, weekend, same thing. So um, there's something really magical, apparently, that happens here in the, in the summer. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to that as well. I do get to come back in May, which will be a, another delight. Um, but uh, I don't think this is too like awkward a like analogy here, but... Our, our, our text now this morning, this Palm Sunday text about Christ entering into Jerusalem the week of his crucifixion. Um, so we have this, this account in, in the book of Mark. We have it in the other accounts as well. But um, the book of Mark is this fascinating summary of the life of Christ. It's 16 chapters long, but it's not proportional. It talks about the summer in the Hamptons a lot. It doesn't talk about January in the Hamptons very much. It talks about the summer in the Hamptons a lot. Here's what I mean by that. It's 16 chapters long, but now beginning with chapter 11, the last six chapters are all focused on one week in the life of Christ. One week. Ten chapters to summarize his whole life up to that point, and then six whole chapters to talk about one week. So depending on how you do the math, if, if Mark had been proportional, Mark uh, the gospel writer, not Mark medical, um, <laughs> the, if Mark the gospel writer had been proportional in his treatment of that week, if he'd given it the same attention he'd given the first 30 years of Jesus' life, we'd only have three verses about the whole week. Jesus entering Jerusalem, the crucifixion, the resurrection, we'd have three verses about that. That's all we'd have. Or the other way, do the math the other way, if he'd given the same attention to Christ's life up to this point that he gives to this one week, we'd have a book as, as long as the whole Bible, just, a, just Mark's gospel would be as big as the whole Bible. So then the Bible itself would be 67 times bigger, whatever, you know. So all of that is to say it's, it's entirely appropriate to focus on parts of your experience that matter, just to see more... more Lively, you know, the summer in the Hamptons. It's entirely appropriate that the Gospels slow down and focus on this final week of Christ's life. This is the most important part of it all. So, our Gospel account is Mark chapter 11. And as I said, all four Gospels talk about, uh, give the account of the triumphal entry. And, um, but we're going to use the, the one from the book of Mark. So here it is, Mark chapter 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, 
Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields, And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Please pray with me. Lord, we have just read uh, your word, this account of this remarkable moment in the life of Jesus nearly 2,000 years ago, this moment that changed everything, that changed the whole world and changed us. And so we ask you once again to open our eyes, our hearts, illuminate this passage for our understanding that our lives would be transformed by your grace for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you uh, listened carefully, you'll have noted that the Mark account doesn't give reference specifically to palms. It just talks about leafy branches. But it's the John account. So we've not misnamed Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday. Leafy branches doesn't have the same, uh, you know, you know, pop, leafy branches Sunday. So we've not misnamed it. It's, it's Palm Sunday. The Gospel of John tells us these palm branches. Um, so it's, it's wonderful to see them laid out here. It's most appropriate that we slow down and see the significance of what's happening in this moment. Um, so the, f- the first thing to, to point out, since you'll notice I'm making use of these parallel passages, If you, again, read carefully the sermon title, it's called Face Like Flint. And you will have noticed that doesn't come up anywhere in this passage. And what that's a reference to is one of the parallel passages. That in the book of Luke, we hear that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And that that's a reference to the book of Isaiah, chapter 50 where we hear um, uh, the, the Messiah saying, Therefore I have set my face like flint. I have set my face like flint. So Luke tells us this is what Jesus did. He set his face like flint. And so what we see here in this passage is this purposefulness of Jesus, that he's been indicating to his apostles now for weeks and weeks and weeks that he must go up to Jerusalem. 
And they know if he does that, he is going to be killed. And they tell him not to. And he says, no, I must go up to Jerusalem. I must be delivered up for you. He sets his face like flint. He's got this resolve. He knows exactly what he's getting into. He's warned away from it. And yet he persists with this this resolute conviction. His face is like flint. Now, I grew up watching the Flintstones. That's all I, that's my reference for Flint, the, the Flintstones, this, this cartoon. Um, and I don't know why they named it the Flintstones, but um, Flint is the hardest of all stones. Um, an, another sort of a, hopefully I'm not a TV addict, but I'm something of a TV head. Uh, another TV reference, the, the, the Survivor. Have you seen this show, which is in like 48 seasons now? Um, one of my daughter's college classmates was a, this season's Survivor. And if you ever watch any of this, this show Survivor, you know that if offered a reward, um, the, the, if given a choice of one item that you want in order to survive, the thing to choose is the flint and steel, the, the fire starter. That's the thing. Because then you can get fresh water because you can boil water. And it, it saves everything if you can make fire. And so flint and steel, that's the thing that you need, fire starter. Okay, now, for an old Boy Scout, I, I remember using flint and steel, but I didn't know like, the science of what was happening. I just know you, you hit this flint and steel together and a spark comes onto, onto the um, tinder, you know, the, the fire starter wood that you've, you've prepared. Okay, well, here's the science of what's happening. Most of you maybe already know this, but when the steel and the flint are hit, hitting each other, the spark is a little shaving of the steel. The flint is so hard, it is shaving off little bits of steel. That's how hard flint is. This is a very well-chosen image for the resolution of Jesus to save us. He will not be turned away from that. He has set his face, not even like steel, Because even steel is softer than something else. He set his face like flint. So that's why the sermon is titled that. It sort of changes everything when when you realize that this isn't just sort of an unfolding plan that Jesus walked along with. But this was his plan. He didn't fall into it. He chose this plan to save us. He was not going to be deterred then, and he's not going to be deterred now, and he'll never be deterred from bringing us all safely home to himself. He is resolute in that. Well, as we slow down and look at this passage, I want us to see it hopefully under this something of a helpful framing. We're going to use four images to get at three majestic achievements And to conclude with seeing the two big ideas. So four images to help us see the three majestic achievements to get us to two big ideas. This passage gives us a number of details. We're going to focus on four of them, these four different images. Here's the first one. This idea that Jesus is riding in on a cult, the cult of a a donkey. The, the riding in on a cult. And 
most of us are aware, and hopefully all of us, if we were attentive to our call for worship this morning, are indeed aware that this is a fulfillment of a prophecy from the book of Zechariah. We began our worship service by being called to worship that in the book of Zechariah, the penultimate book of the Hebrew scriptures, one of the prophecies of when we will know the Messiah is here when he does this and that, this and such and such and this, and one of those was that he would ride into Jerusalem on a colt, on a, the, the foal of a donkey, a humble king. And so this image of a cult shows us at least these two great things. It shows us that he is, he is indeed the fulfillment of these thousands of years of the Hebrew scriptures prophesying that a great son of David, a Messiah, would come. And Jesus is fulfilling that. But the image itself also shows us this other thing. It shows us his humility, and in so doing, his, his mercy. There's, um, this is, it's interesting, near the very end of Jesus' ministry, that's what we're reading about now, it's sort of bookended by near the very beginning of his ministry. In Luke chapter 4, we, we have an account of how Jesus begins his ministry by going into the synagogue being handed the scroll to be read that day, and it was a prophecy from the book of Isaiah, chapter 61, and how Jesus reads that prophecy, ends the reading, rolls up the scroll, and hands it back and says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus begins his ministry by demonstrating, I'm here to fulfill Scripture. And of course, he's ending his ministry doing the same thing. But those parallel accounts, there's something remarkable going on in both of them, both the thing today and the, and the Luke chapter 4 account. The passage Jesus was reading in Isaiah, from Isaiah 61 in Luke chapter 4, he read to them... He's summarizing his ministry, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Boom, end. He rolled literally rolls up the scroll and hands it back. He ends the reading at that moment and says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, here's the thing. Had he read on, had he kept the scroll open and read the very next phrase, because the Isaiah passage says, I'm here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of God's wrath. Jesus doesn't read that. He did not come in his first coming to fulfill that part of the prophecy. He came to bring to this world mercy and nothing but mercy and freedom and salvation and the offer of it. To be sure, he will fulfill the second part at some future time. There will be a day when he comes back and makes all things right and brings wrath upon all evil. 
Our hope now is that he is offering mercy and nothing but mercy. He rolled up the scroll. He said, "This I'm done with proclaiming what I'm here to do. Now, same thing is happening on Palm Sunday because he's riding in on a humble uh, 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 a donkey, a, a, a colt. And it is indeed a symbol of of royalty in that time and place it, it wasn't so much like um like a, a worker bee sort of symbol of of just like something lugging a, a, a heavy weight a burden it was a symbol of royalty um kings would ride on on donkeys in that time and place but the very next verse in zechariah which again we didn't read in the call to worship this morning because it's not part of what was being fulfilled that day The very next verse in the book of Zechariah doesn't talk about a donkey. It talks about a war horse. Jesus is not coming into Jerusalem on a war horse. One day he will. One day he will come back to this world. Read the book of Revelation. (laughs) He comes back with wrath and fury upon all evil in this world. But in the meantime, he's coming in with humility. He's offering mercy to all of us. That is our great hope. That is good news. That is why we're inviting our friends to Easter service. Come and hear about the mercy being offered to all of us. So that's the first image. Here's a second image, the image of the palm branches. So doing, hopefully, if you have study Bibles that will point out these things, but in the Old Testament, there were these moments where Israel would use palm branches as a way of celebrating some military victory, some great conquest. David or some other king would come back from a conquest and they would wave palm branches. So the, the palm branch, I, was, I, I don't quite know exactly why Israel at that time and place connected it to victory, you can do your own research on that. For our purposes, it just was connected with victory. Like I was trying to remember, I was in the Navy and I uh, was a lieutenant and um, the, the, uh, had I become the next rank, I would have gotten an oak leaf for my insignia. Um, and the lieutenant, I mean the lieutenant commander, the commander have oak leaf. I don't know why. I don't know why that's, I just know that an oak leaf symbolizes rank and authority. I, I don't, Somebody research that. Find Google and why does the Navy use an oak leaf to symbolize authority? I'm not sure. So I don't exactly know exactly why palm branches symbolized uh, military conquest and victory. We just know that they did. And it was understood that day. This was, their, this was what they were symbolically demonstrating by waving these branches. So there's great victory being proclaimed here. It's also interesting, though, same thing with, uh, it doesn't have quite the same like cachet to call this Sunday, like Leafy Branch Sunday. Um, it's, it's interesting because what's given more attention than the palm branches in this passage is the cloaks being laid down. But it wouldn't have the same, you know, pop to cloak Sunday, come to, come to cloak. Um, but the cloaks are given this attention here, similar to the palm branches, and the, but the, the difference is just simply something to lay down in front of Jesus, but it comes from their, their own. They're giving themselves away. They're giving away their own clothing to demonstrate 
that Jesus, you matter more to me than my stuff. And so it's this marvelous moment of not just declaring his victory, but also their, their desire to give their lives away for him. This is a, this beautiful moment in the life of God's people. Even as we confessed our sin earlier this morning, we know that, that there's, it's a mixed bag. And, and they later, they, they turn on him within a week. But we're all mixed bags. And in this moment, we can at least triumph and say, this is, this is being given to us as an example of what the coming of Jesus really does. It, it makes us generous. And we give away our cloaks, as it were. Here's a third image, though, in this, in, on this great day. There's all this wonderful shouting going on. And we, we shouted, shouted those same things, maybe louder than that sneeze just then. Um, we shouted those same things in our prayer um, early, just, just earlier before my sermon. The shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. It's um, not too difficult to understand how this is being portrayed for us here. There's other things people say about Jesus that the Gospels capture for us, where as you read it, you realize the writer is trying to tell me that this is, these are wrong and false things being said about Jesus. Like when there's this like, scene of the, of the Pharisees gathering in secret to plot and they're saying these things about Jesus, we, the reader, realize, okay, the things they're saying about Jesus, they're not in a good, good place. Their hearts are not in a good spot. Therefore, the things they're saying about Jesus are almost certainly just wrong. Now, but this passage, you see, is the exact opposite. It's showing us that their hearts are in the right place. They're laying out the, their cloaks. They're giving their lives away for Jesus. Therefore, the things they're saying about Jesus, this is a perfect capturing of the heart of, of the believer. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All these things they're saying here. Hosanna literally means essentially save us. Save us. We need saving. We need saving. At the same time at which we the reader know that they're saying these profound and wonderfully true things that we ourselves want to say. At the same time, we, the reader, know we're reading on a deeper level. We know that these believers saying these things, they get all mixed up and confused within days. And so how deep is their understanding? We, we the reader, know, know that. Because within days, they're saying, crucify him to the one they had just said, save us. So here's what we're being invited to go down deep and realize that the call for Jesus to save us, it, it is, it's essential that, we, that that call come from our heart where we understand the deepest needs that we have. So, did the people of God at that time and place need to be saved from an oppressive military um, conquest, the, the Roman authorities? Yes and amen. They certainly needed to be saved from an, an oppressive political, tyrannical force. Did they need to be saved from their diseases, their blindness? 
yes and amen. And Jesus healed them. And we could go down the list of all these other things that we definitely need saving from. But what we're going to say is all those are salvations with a small s. And that if you remember, why is Jesus even given the name Jesus? This is one of these Bible trivia questions, which isn't really trivia because we know this. In the book of Matthew, the angel says, you will name your son Jesus because he will save his people from their, what? From their sins. There's the deepest capital S salvation. To the degree to which they were calling out that day, save us, capital S, from my own sinfulness, our own sinfulness, is the degree to which they were calling out in true faith. Do keep going to God, pleading with him, calling out for him for salvation, for all the other small s salvations. Definitely ask him for salvation and help from everything temporal, everything affecting your life and this church's life, finances, health, ask him for help. Never stop doing that. This is not an either or. This is a both and. But always underneath it, have as your deepest hosanna, the regular thank you for saving me from my sin. Thank you for saving me from my sin. That indeed is my deepest need. That indeed, that gulf that separates me from my creator I need that fixed way more than everything else put together. And so there's this call for Hosanna, save us. And then a fourth image. After this glorious moment where they're calling out, they're praising him. Um, And then it says in verse 11, he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, then he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So the fourth image, just to slow down for a moment, is just to take a look at the, the aftermath. What, what happened after this great parade, this great celebration, is that Jesus went to the temple and he inspected it. He inspected the temple. Now, the word inspection, I still have like, um, uh, it, it still like triggers me. I have anxiety when the word inspection, because... I, my wife and I had set our wedding day, um, but it was dependent on my ship when I was in the Navy passing our big inspection. And they, sent, they send ships, at least back then, down to, to Guantanamo Bay where there's this devoted team of inspectors that come on board your ship and they inspect everything from stem to stern, you know, from the masthead down to the, the hull or whatever. And... and um, and they, so the inspector, this, I always remember, they come on board the first morning at, at 9 a.m., this team of inspectors coming up and with, their, with their clipboards, and you have to meet them with your division and then show them into your spaces. And, and then at the end of the day, at about 5 p.m., they give you this long list of the things that they found. And then you have to fix all those things by the next morning. But then it turns out they're not coming at 9 a.m. the next morning. They're coming at 8 a.m., and they're going to stay till 6 p.m., and the next night, they're going to come at 7 a.m. and stay till 7 p.m. Until finally, it was sort of like, we're coming at 4 a.m., but we didn't give you the list until midnight the night before. And you have to have it all fixed. And, and if you don't pass the inspection, we keep you down here. So I was terrified, thinking I wasn't going to get back for my wedding. And so the word inspection it causes all this anxiety for me. 
Now, and 30 years later in retrospect, don't, can't I see the big picture that, that the inspectors were, were doing me a service? They were trying to make sure that our ship was safe and that if, if flooding happened, we were going to be able to make the, tight, the compartments watertight. They were protecting us from things. They weren't like some, some enemies. Well, I, you can give me counsel afterwards because I still don't quite, quite, quite get that. But I see, I wonder, I think, is that how I view Jesus? Is that how sometimes we view Jesus? He plainly is inspecting us. Like, all the time, 24-7. He's always with us. He is the God who sees. Can we make the flip, though, in our hearts to see what good news that is? Or are we still like me? <laughs> just I, I, I don't quite get it. I just, it just makes me nothing but terrified to think of Jesus always with me. No, 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 no. This is the saving work of Jesus who has not come to your life on a war horse to destroy you. He has not come with vengeance. His inspection is nothing but good news. One of my counseling professors had a, had a phrase, the essence of encouragement is exposure without rejection. And so we reduced it to an acronym so we could get it right on our tests, E-E-E-E-E-W-R, whatever. The essence of, ex- of, of encouragement is exposure without rejection. No one wants inspectors to come on board and say, eh, everything's fine, we, I'm not going to look around at any of the details, everything's fine, we're done, you pass. I'm not going to expose anything, but I'm not going to reject you. I accept you. I don't expose anything, but I accept you. No one wants inspectors like that. And also, no one wants inspectors that come and expose everything and then condemn you and reject you. Here is Jesus. He is, his inspection is a constant encouragement in the life of the church. We invite him in. We want him to be evaluating our lives and our corporate life together. So there is the aftermath. He has come truly to make all things new. We don't have time to go off on another theme except just to simply say this. He is demonstrating here that he's inspecting the temple. And the rest of the New Testament makes plain that he has come to make a new temple, his church. He is constantly with his church, making us new. This is the Christ who comes to us. All right, those are four images from this passage. As we sort of wrap up, it helps us to summarize all these things by seeing how these four images point us to the three majestic achievements of the cross. This is what we do meditate on all year long. Mark and and his ministry here and you all's ministry together, I know this characterizes you. So we won't dive down deep into these three things because you regularly praise God for these three majestic achievements all the time. But this is how John Stott summarizes this week of Christ going to the cross the cross of Christ, he says there's these three majestic achievements. And so these four images each have their own way of illustrating three things. One, the great salvation of sinners. I think we can see that with the cult, the palm branches, the shouting, the aftermath. The great salvation of sinners. This is why Jesus set his face like flint. There was no other way to save sinners but for him to go to the cross. He was not going to be turned aside. The second great 
achievement. The cross, Holy Week, shows us the salvation of sinners, but it also is the great revelation of God. The very character of God is displayed here. And here's a simple way of summarizing that from this passage. We see Jesus in his character, revealing the character of God by both the hardness of his face like flint and the softness of his heart. He's got a hard face. He's not going to be turned aside from his resolve and his purpose to save us. The sovereign God is indeed a great and powerful king who cannot be, set aside, cannot be turned aside. He will accomplish his purposes. And Jesus comes and reveals the hardness, the face like flint of God's decrees and purposes. And that's such good news. But he also comes and he shows us the softness of his heart, this tender mercy of God. And so that's the second great achievement that these four images show us, the salvation of sinners, the revelation of God. And then finally, the third great achievement is the conquest of evil. Again, all four images, the colt, the palm branches, the shouting, the aftermath, show us that Christ really has come to conquer evil. And it was necessary that he set his face like flint in order to do that. So it's springtime coming up, and some of you will begin like weeding your gardens, or maybe you've already begun. And my question is, is haven't you already done that before? So why, are you, why do you still have to do it? I weeded once, or like this morning I brushed my teeth So do I ever have to brush my teeth again? Wasn't that sufficient? I brushed my teeth once. I conquered plaque once. (laughs) We are are so easily set turned aside from the daily ongoing battle against evil. (laughs) In this case, just the simple images of weeds and, and plaque. But we do that with our own characters as well. I'm an impatient person. I'm I've battled that for years. I think I'm just done battling it. I'm just going to give in to being an impatient person, to interrupting people. To That's just who I am. I can't keep that battle up. I can't, you know, we, we just give in to this idea. We're so easily, Jesus is not like that. His great achievement to conquer evil. The weeds pop up, they pop up again, they pop up again, and he's constantly, his face like flint, he will destroy the works of the devil. That's one of the ways the book of Hebrews summarizes Jesus' work. He will destroy the works of the devil, even when we're not. He will. The conquest of evil is his other great achievement. He goes to the cross, and he was given opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. You don't have to do that. You don't have to go all the way there. You just really don't have to. You can go about it a different way. No, let's rethink this. He's given all these other opportunities. But he knows to truly destroy and conquer evil, his face must be set like flint. This is the third great majestic achievement. All right, so these four images that show us these three majestic achievements, and then it leads us to these, the two big ideas that we're, we're wrapping up with. Um. John Calvin, one of the theological forebears of the Presbyterian Church, he begins his institutes, his massive theological work, by talking about the two great knowledges 
There's two big ideas. And the two great knowledges are knowledge of self and knowledge of God. He goes on to actually say there's a third great knowledge, knowledge of, of the world and how to, how to live in this world. But those two really sum up everything. And that's how we conclude this morning, is whenever we come to church, whenever we see a passage of Scripture, we want for that passage, we want for our experience of God to deepen our true anthropology and our true theology, our true understanding of who we are as human beings and our true understanding of who God is. On the front of your bulletin is this wonderful little quote from a, a Narnia, a moment in the Narnia tales that C.S. Lewis wrote. So here's, here's the, 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 the big idea about who we are as people. Aslan, the Christ figure, says to these, these children, you come from the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve, and that is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. Be content. Jesus comes into Jerusalem to save us. That he would do that? What? That, that we matter that much to him? As the book of Hebrews says, he did not take on the form of angels or animals. He didn't take on the life form of a dolphin or a canine. He took on our human flesh. The dignity that comes with that. You do need deepened for in your own self-understanding, your own anthropology, your own awareness of who you are as a person. Every day you need to go down even deeper in the glorious dignity you have. There is no one like you. There never has been. There never will be again. And Jesus came for you. The glorious dignity of that is enough to raise the the how does he put it, erect the head of the poorest beggar. But at the same time, the fact that Jesus had to do it this way by offering his own sinless life for our sinful lives at the same time keeps us very humble. As Pascal, the French philosopher and theologian put it, he said, it does not, is not a good idea to tell people that they are like the angels without also telling them they are like the beasts. And it is also not a good idea to tell people they are like the beasts without also telling them they are like the angels. And it's still worse to leave them ignorant of both. But rather, theology teaches we are both like the angels and like the beasts. We are loved. Christ comes in because there's no one else he loves more than you. But also Christ comes in because there's no one else that needs saving more than you. So that's the big idea of our anthropology and then the big idea of our theology. The very character and love of God is displayed for us here. He's got this hard like flint resolve, but this soft and merciful heart to save us. He moves forward, as Hebrews says, through this week, beginning with Palm Sunday, ending with the cross, and then the resurrection. He moves forward through this week, the book of Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him. This is the God 
alive now, ascended to the Father's right hand, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, everything he continues to do on behalf of Grace Hampton's church and on behalf of you personally is for the joy set before him so that he can present you before his Father blameless and say, as it says in Hebrews 2, here I am, Father, and the brothers and sisters you have given me. Jesus moves through all this, his face like flint, for the joy of being united with you and building this church. Let's pray. How loved we are, O God, and we um, are just beginning to understand that. Even if we've been diving down deep in that truth in beautiful ways for 50, 60, 70, 80 years, we are still just now beginning to understand because this is this eternity of the privilege of grasping how far and how wide and how high and how long and how broad your love for us is. Demonstrate your love for this church and everything coming ahead of it. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you, your face was like flint to save us and your heart is soft and tender, full of mercy towards us. We pray, Lord, we know you are coming with wrath one day. And we praise you for having saved us from that. But keep using us as your people here in this world and here in the Hamptons to bring other people into the saving community for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.